Welcome to the Rennie Podcast, a podcast about the real estate market and the people connected by it. We seek to empower our listeners to make informed decisions while providing context for the real estate world around them. We hope that with every episode, you become a little more knowledgeable and a lot more curious. Hello, everyone. I'm Justine Liu, a managing broker at Rennie, and today we're going to be shining the spotlight on our most recent intelligence publication. Our April 2022 edition of the Rennie Landscape are also known in the industry as the Little Red Book. For those of us who are less familiar with the landscape, it is a semi-annual publication that our Intel team produces and tracks a variety of factors that directly and indirectly impact Metro Vancouver's housing market. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into our three key insights. We are nearing the end of our housing market super cycle. Our market is supported by strong fundamentals and headwinds are blowing into our market. So with us today is Ryan Berlin, our Senior Economist and Director of Intelligence at Rennie, and Ryan Wise, our Senior Analyst with our Intelligence Division. Hey Ryan, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Yeah, we're good. So the last time we were here was six months ago when we discussed our last landscape. So it feels good to be back again to discuss the next upcoming one to see what's changed. Totally, yeah, and a lot has changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, time has flown. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot we really want to unpack here. I think that there's been so much going on lately that uh, we're really looking forward to talking about this. So Ryan, are you able to explain what the landscape is in more detail? Yeah, it's, it's a good idea, actually. <clears throat> we So here at Rennie and on the Intel team, um, we do produce a lot of content that's really focused on unpacking how our housing market is changing vis-a-vis sales counts, um, inventory prices, those sort of traditional real estate metrics. And those are really the what's I would call them of our market. Um, it was years ago at this point now, which is crazy to me when, um, we, we felt strong and we realized that, um, we needed some contextual content to help us and to help our clients, our advisors, mm-hmm. just the general public, um, better understand some of the whys, like why is our market changing in the ways that it is, not just that it is changing. Um, and honest to goodness, in the not too distant past, I I would have conversations with um, real estate professionals, people with working in our market who are objectively good at what they do, who know housing markets inside and out. And they would talk to me about the market and they would tell me that they think prices would will keep rising in the coming years, um, that sales will be really, really strong simply because those are the conditions that have prevailed in the most recent past. And then they kind of look at me for validation, like Mm -hmm. knowing that, you know, I was a data guy, like that's right. Right. Like that, that's, what's going to happen because it happened before. Um, and it was just interesting because there wasn't a lot of, um, reliance on, data and broader evidence to support perspectives on the market as much as there is today. And this isn't just a Rennie thing or an Intel thing. This is, I think within our market, we're seeing a maturation of how we look at trends and how we evaluate directions of change. Um, now I know, I think I've said this before on this podcast that I'm, 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 I'm hesitant to make too many predictions, mm-hmm. um, when it comes to, especially when it comes to things like prices. Um, I've often quoted, uh, famous economist, John Kenneth Galbraith, 
who once said that economic forecasting was invented to make astrology look respectable. <laughs> and really what he's saying there is just that it's a mugs game when you're forecasting, especially when you're forecasting prices at the intersection of supply and demand factors of which there are many on both sides. Um, it's just, a, it's a really, really tough thing to do. Um, but I do think that when we're talking about our housing market, it's important to understand how things like the economy, the labor market, how financial markets, how policy and demographics and other what economists would call exogenous events or external or global events or shocks are changing our market. Um, so that's, you know, in a nutshell, if that's if you want to call that a nutshell, <laughs> that is what the landscape was designed to do was to describe, Justine, as you said, you know, all of those factors that sort of directly and indirectly uh, impact our market. And so it's taking the temperature on things affecting Canada as a whole, and then more narrowly BC and also Metro Vancouver, um, and answers the questions of, you know, what tailwinds are supporting our market mm -hmm. and what headwinds are we, are we working against? Great. So with that being said, let's dive into our first insight. We are nearing the end of a housing market super cycle. So this question is for Ryan Berlin. Can you explain what a super cycle is and why is it that we see its ending? So I suppose we could just call the, the oscillations of our market cyclical, that we go through cycles for sure. Um, but many markets, and specifically those for commodities or assets that includes housing, go through um, some fairly predictable and sometimes significant ups and downs, whether it's measured by uh, levels of activity. Um, and if we look at our housing market, that would be sales. And if we look at the last couple of years, we've had really elevated sales. Um, we've had new records set. We've had extremes reached on the demand side, on the supply side, on the price side since the beginning of the, the pandemic. So, you know, we talk about our current housing market context. I think it's cyclical for sure, but this most recent period, maybe one and a half to two years long now at this point, um, I think it's justifiably, you know, uh, uh, termed a, a super cycle. Um, and I think that at the end of a super cycle or when a, when a market is starting to slow down, you're not seeing something that is objectively bad happen per se, right? So especially when you look at the conditions in our market today where we have extremely low inventory, if we look at how fast and how far prices have risen and how strong some segments of demand have been, I think that a change in dynamics is is welcomed by many within the industry and just within just within our region in general. Um, and I think we're going to see some changes in the coming months and through the, the balance of the year that will benefit um, certain stakeholders within the region and specifically uh, just off the top of my head, first time home buyers, uh, people looking to move up in the market, you know, maybe from a condo to a townhome that want a bit more space for their family. Um, I think we're going to see some you know, with greater balance in the market, we'll, we'll see some improvements in conditions for many, many people. And, and I want to give credit here to Kevin Skipworth, who's the chief economist and principal at Dexter Realty, also a friend who, he didn't coin the term super cycle, but he used the term sales super cycle to characterize this market. And I think it's very apt. And I would just mm -hmm. respectfully expand on that and call the entire cycle that we've gone through a super cycle because it's not just sales. It has also applied to supply and it's also applied to prices. 
That's a good point, actually. I was just going to ask, what classifies or what are the characteristics that you look for to classify something as a super cycle as opposed to just a cycle? Can that term be used interchangeably? So this, we haven't really seen this sort of term be used in a real estate market mm -hmm. context, but we said just on the last podcast we did that we really characterized the most recent year as all about broken records. So we didn't just mm. see highs and lows, peaks and valleys. We saw record highs and record lows and record prices, record sales, record inventory. So I think in, in that sense, we've really seen um, just a market behave in a way we had never seen this market behave before. Um, and so I think there's this sense that the things are starting to change. There's a feeling when we talk to advisors and realtors out there that things have really slowed down. I think some of the important sort of context to that is Yes, the market is starting to slow down. We're seeing in the April data that things have cooled off a little bit, mm -hmm. but we're still really talking about, again, elevated uh, elevated activity levels, whether it be um, sales, listings, things like that. We're, we've come off of this incredible peak, and now things are, are becoming more, not quite balanced, but maybe um, a little calmer, a little more predictable for for buyers and sellers and people in the market so i'll throw some numbers out there because that's what i like to do <laughs> so for the first quarter of 2022 uh, in the resale market we had about 15,500 sales which sure it's down you know close to 20 percent year over year again that sort of q1 2021 being a prime example of that super cycle um, but that's still 32 percent above the long-run average we're still talking about sales activity a third higher than we would normally see in the first quarter of a year. Um, and inventory is still constrained. Inventory has now doubled from our December low to the end of March or into, into April. Um, but we're still talking about, we'll probably finish April looking at the daily data like we like to do. Uh, just under 14,000 listings, so homes for sale, um, the average being close to 18,000. So again, we're, we're still in constrained inventory, elevated sales level, but it's just not that incredible pace of the super cycle as, as Ryan likes to characterize it. Um, so we haven't seen, we haven't finished compiling the, the pre-sale data as well for the first quarter. Um, but we're, we're sort of in that 5,800 to 6,000 territory. So homes sold mm -hmm. in pre-sale. So that again, will be down from that, that peak of Q1 2021, but again, it's still incredibly elevated. It's much higher than 2020 and 2019, which were again, slow years. Um, so we're seeing this sort of some of the, the rush to buy come off and now we're seeing, but we're still seeing a lot of activity out there in the marketplace. Um, and then as far as sort of the new launches, we like to look at, you know, how many new projects have launched and come to market. And we still, we actually saw more homes come to market in the first quarter of this year than the first quarter of last year. As last year, I think to an extent was absorbing some of that inventory that was sort of left over through the pandemic. It's interesting because I think when you objectively, so you look at the data for, for Q1, whether it's across resale or pre-sale, there are hints that things are slowing down, but it's still like the market is still quite active. Mm -hmm. um, but I, but I, you get the sense that there are some, you know, we talk about headwinds blowing in. Um, there are some things weighing on people's minds, whether they're buyers, sellers, developers, builders, right? I mean, there, there's more uncertainty, I think, in the market today. And and that's when we talk about the end of a super cycle. It's not certain, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it does feel like rather than a, a bubble bursting, because I, I don't believe that we've been in a bubble. And it's funny because it's, 
it's it's coming on now 12 years that I have sort of been in front of audiences who have asked me, hey, um, when is this bubble going to burst? And me responding, well, it doesn't appear to be a bubble to me. And so it, it hasn't to this point been a bubble. So such a loaded term. It, yeah. it really is. I mean, we don't, it's not, it, it is an ill-defined term as mm-hmm. well, but to use a another sort of amorphous analogy, I, I think that it's it's more about or an an, uh, an ill-defined analogy. I think what we're seeing now maybe is the beginning of some air being let out of the balloon rather than, mm-hmm. than a bubble bursting. So let's go right into our second question. Our housing market has been and continues to be supported by strong economic and demographic fundamentals. So Ryan Wise, what are the fundamentals you are referring to? Yeah, great question. But first, I think I want to give a little bit of context for why I think this is important. We've just been in this sort of constant state of change for the last two years. Mm -hmm. Um, There's so many factors, so many metrics we're tracking that have changed so quickly. Our lives have been changed upside down numerous times over the last couple of years. Um, and we're really just seeing changes evolve so rapidly right now. Even when we made this report from when we started working on it until we published, we actually changed uh, all the mm. data points a couple of times because things were changing so quickly and we had to update to make sure we we're as relevant as we are. And even since we sent it to be published, uh, a few major things have happened since Probably then. So changes. Exactly. So we're really, we're really just watching things change constantly. And what we want to say about all of this is the, the fundamentals in this region, the underlying reasons why our market, our local market, our local economy has performed so well is because of strong economic and dem- demographic fundamentals. And really, I think it starts with demographic fundamentals. So I think the first part of that is that our, our strong demographic fundamentals were this aging population and we bring in a lot of migration and that really supports our economic growth. Yeah, and that's and we've talked about this before, um, Ryan and Justine about um, how we do have um, literally the highest immigration rate in the world. I want to say certainly within mm-hmm. the developed world. Um, twenty twenty one was a record year for Canada. We 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 welcomed over four hundred thousand permanent residents to the country. Now many of them were already here, um, and were converted from. Um, a visa status to permanent resident, but we also welcomed over 450,000 international students last year. So those are people who are new to the country, um, and we had we had never achieved that that level um, prior. And it's part of this policy on the part of the federal government to bring in educated, highly skilled individuals to contribute to our you know our broader economic well-being here in Canada um, but of course all of these people need a place to live as well so that that does when we talk about it from a housing market context we're looking at an increased demand for housing of all types um, both ownership and and also rental um, and then looking ahead the federal government has increased its target for immigration for this current year to over 430,000 and that's going to step up to over 450,000 by 2024. And I know from having conversations with people in government, um, you know, not so long ago, five, six years ago, this idea that we might be bringing in 400,000 immigrants a year just seemed unfathomable. It seemed like a a worthy goal from an economic perspective, but it's amazing that, that the future is here in that, in that respect. And then we look at 
to Ryan's point about some of the other fundamentals supporting our market, the labor market here is very strong. We have a regional unemployment rate that's at 5.4%. What does that mean? Well, just for some context, prior to the pandemic, we were at 4.5%, which is more or less a historical low. And so we have been trending down to where we are today, and we expect by the end of the year that we're going to be closer to 4% than we are um, uh, 5%. We have... um, the number of unemployed people in this region is just a smidge above where it was back in February of 2020, prior to the pandemic, after a big spike. So we're seeing normalization in the labor market. The engagement with the labor market as well, as we measure it through the participation rate, is what we, labor force participation rate, we're seeing the 25 to 54-year-olds with the highest labor force participation rate um, here in BC than we've, we've ever seen before. And we're just off that record high for the 55 plus population as well. So the the economy here, the labor market is very dynamic. And that is something that when we, we combine that with the demographics and increased migration and growth going forward, we expect that to really support our housing market. Yeah. And there's a few other things I think are worth, worth talking about today. Um, we, we at Rennie like to talk about the mortgage-free equity mm-hmm. in the region. It's something that uh, has been talked about a lot. And it we keep updating this chart and this data and it keeps going up. Um, so as of December, it was $446 billion of mortgage-free equity wow. in this region. So 55% of that is held by the 55 to 74 year olds. So think boomers. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, a lot of these people are the bank of mom and dad helping their kids get into the market. And a lot of them are, are spending in the local economy. Some of them are mom and pop investors buying uh, and that sort of underpins uh, a lot of what's going on in this market. Um, the other one that always jumps out at me, and I, I, I've seen this number countless times, and I'm always surprised by it, but 40% of principal residence households in this region are mortgage-free. You think of most people as yeah. you know owning a home and having a mortgage, but the reality is that uh, 4 out of 10 don't have a mortgage on their own home that they live in. So there's, you know, there's really um, this sort of base... Mm-hmm. that uh, that people are working from. Uh, and it also in terms of household savings. So since the start of the pandemic, this, this is for all of Canada, but Canadians have saved net savings um, since March of 2020 has been $345 billion, which is a massive amount. And it's this, about the same amount as the previous 10 years. So Canadians saved in two years, about the same amount that they saved in the previous 10. Um, not traveling, I'm sure, is a big part of that. And I'm, yeah. I would expect a, a number of people to start again this year. But there's a lot, of, a lot of things going on there. A lot of people have saved. Do you think spending is going to increase now, now that traveling restrictions are you know, being less strict and uh, people have saved quite a bit of money, so they're itching to spend it? I, I, would, I would think so. I mean, we'll see as sort of the year develops where that some of that savings is being deployed. Um, but certainly our local real estate market is one of those places. Yeah, yeah and that, I mean, that money now was saved, you know, accumulated over the past, whatever, almost two years. But it's not all sitting in people's bank accounts now. It has already been deployed into the economy. I mean, it's mm-hmm. feeding into the inflation story. Yes. Um, it has already made, some of it has made its way into real estate. Um, so we're probably looking at like, you know, a, a little bit, uh, maybe a third of that or a little bit less that's still sort of, you know, in the hands of Canadian households to be deployed going forward. 
Um, and we'll see, but I, but I think to Ryan's point, like that, that is, um, that is a source of, um, I don't want to say stability for the housing market, but there's certainly resources there that are available to be deployed into the market going forward. And so for that reason, and for reasons related to the whole mortgage-free equity story and the labor market and our demographics, that's why we feel when we look long-term, we feel, you know, we feel confident in not just the region's housing market, but this region's economy. Yeah, there's a lot of really strong demand side factors that we don't see you know, going anywhere anytime soon. So this brings us into our third insight. Our housing market is facing headwinds that hint at a slowdown in activity. Ryan Berlin, can you explain or expand further on what this insight means? What I'm getting at there with that one is that we've talked about our market in a fairly consistent way because we saw a lot of upside in a sense from a demand perspective. Um, there wasn't a lot of you know reason as we saw it at, in any given month uh, for you know a huge expansion in supply related to a poorly performing economy that the prices would really fall off. And so we have seen this sort of steady progression. I'm not saying this has been a, a good outcome for everyone. Uh, for certain. Um, but I think now we're starting to see some uncertainty creep into the picture. And this is where, you know, we we can almost characterize our housing market in the way that we look at our environment. Like we, in this region here in Metro Vancouver, we live in a temperate climate, which mm-hmm. means that generally speaking, we can expect a certain amount of precipitation and a certain amount of temperature variation. Um you know, on, on a given day, right? Like the, just there's some the reasonable bounds for these things. Um, but the weather on any given day isn't necessarily reflective of the climate. Like if you look back to um, last summer when we were dealing with the heat dome, yes. which I've almost like purged from my memory because it was so horrific. I don't have air conditioning. I think it's coming back. <laughs> don't you know it's done. We're, we're done with yeah. it. <laughs> oh no, we're done with it, but I don't think it's done with us. But you know, it was such an extreme. Yeah. It was such an extreme experience. Well, right? then we had weeks. multiple atmospheric rivers later in the year. Exactly. So there were these things that we're dealing with as short-term phenomenon, um, as part of our, you know, our our broader climate. And I I think we almost, in a way, that's how we kind of look at our housing market. So when Ryan was talking about some of the fundamentals that we're looking at that are supporting our market, that doesn't tell us what the market's going to be like tomorrow or a month from now, but it does say that longer term, we have a pretty dynamic economy. We have a lot of immigration and demand for housing. We need to figure out how to add supply, but generally the the conditions are there for for our market to be dynamic. Um, That being said, um, as Ryan said earlier, again, a lot has changed in the past, <laughs> even couple months, like even the last month where, um, a lot of uncertainty has crept into the picture. So when we talk about headwinds that are blowing in, um, a potential moderation in our, in our economy, in our housing market, where is that coming from? I think there's a few sources. So the war in Ukraine, it seems, you know, very separate from our reality here for, for most people, not everyone, but it's had an impact on global economies through commodity prices. Like we've seen a huge spike in natural gas Mm -hmm. um, prices, in oil prices, in wheat prices. And that's hitting us here in Canada in various ways. I mean, we know most conspicuously and obviously through what we're paying per liter at the pump, that has gone up significantly. So that's feeding into this inflation 
not just narrative, but reality, where the most recent inflation data show a 6.7% increase in consumer prices year over year, something we haven't seen in over 30 years. Um, and I, you know, I, Ryan and I talked about this, that, that inflation, the consumer price index isn't a cost of living index in the sense that you know, if prices in one category are going up faster than another, you can find substitutes, right? You can you can swap out the things that you eat or the places that you uh, that you visit or the mm-hmm. activities that you do. But it does, you know, more recently, it does feel like inflation is kind of hitting us everywhere. And part of it is fuel prices are so high, and fuel prices really impact the price of all of the goods that we consume because they're they're transported to us, and fuel is part of that equation. So, I think. Again, that the war in Ukraine seems distant, but in, in, in a few different ways, it is sort of making its way back to our lives here. So higher inflation, bringing with it increasing interest rates. So the Bank of Canada now has said enough is enough after being quite casual about inflation for some time, but in the last few months has said, hey, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna start increasing rates here to curb inflation. Higher interest rates obviously mean a higher cost of borrowing. For, for new borrowers, that's going to curb the amount that is actually borrowed because it's just more expensive to obtain money. Um, for others that are carrying debt, that's going to mean higher carrying costs. You know, you guys talked about inflation so much. You've talked about the Bank of Canada increasing the rates and all these other fundamentals coming into play as a purchaser from an economic standpoint, from an econ- economist standpoint, looking at this, would you say that now would still be an okay time to buy? I think now is always an okay time to buy if you can afford it. Yeah. Like if you look at your own personal finances and you're comfortable with what you're, like if you're buying a home, what your monthly payment might be, you're secure in your employment situation, um, you have adequate savings mm-hmm. in case something doesn't go as planned. There, in my mind, there's never necessarily a bad time to buy. It depends what your your purchase objectives are. But for the, for most people, it's it's they're purchasing because they're end users. They're looking for a home for themselves, their family. So I think if you can afford it, Anytime is is a good time to buy. I do think that the likely scenario as we look ahead over the next few months and through the end of the year is that we will see supply creep up to more average levels, that demand will probably moderate a little bit. And I think prices will, for a bunch of reasons, one, because interest rates are rising, and that is a headwind to price increases, even if it doesn't lead to dramatic declines. But we're also seeing government governments intervene. So at the Mm -hmm. federal level through the foreign buyer ban, even though it's not likely to have a direct significant impact, um, or at the provincial level through the, um, the implementation of a cooling off period. Um, I think, I think that participants in our market will look at that, they'll look at the, the incredibly quickly rising prices and the high prices. They'll look at the government intervening as a sign that, Hey, something's not quite right here. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to wait and see how, things play out over the next little while. And we'll prop that in and of itself will probably lead to some moderation in values and create a little bit more balance in the market. So it, it all depends, you know, it all depends what your price point is as well, because we know we've talked about this previously that the gap between condo and townhome prices is at an all-time high between townhome and detached prices at an all-time mm-hmm. high. So what we could see in the coming months is, you know, some of those gaps close a little bit, which would improve conditions for people that are looking to move up in the market as well. Again, when you're talking about timing, it's always really difficult to try and time the perfect time to Mm -hmm. buy. And it's more about your own personal situation. Mm -hmm, And even if 
you know, if you're looking at prices moderating a little bit in the near future, it, it, hopefully your horizon is still a long-term one where you're, you're looking at this as a long-term investment. And again, back to insight number two, we see fundamentals in this market being very strong. So if you're looking at five, 10, 20 years down the road, I think you'll, you'll be very happy with a decision you make today. That's great insight. And I mean, if, if, if I could actually time the market, do you think that I'd be doing this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, when you talk about what you can afford, again, this idea of everyone being stress tested now, you chances are when you go to qualify, you can afford a rate hike, whether it's whether you're taking a fixed rate or a variable rate, you, that sort of sensitivity is already being built in. You know that you can yeah. take uh, a certain rate increase and be okay and know that you're, you're confident in your budget. So I guess the underlying thing is speak to professionals in those areas. So whether it's mortgage or real estate and you have to see whether or not it's a good time for you. And know your budget. Yeah. Yeah. Number one thing is, yeah, know your budget and be honest with yourself about that. Um, but with that, historically, um, inventory is at its highest in the summer. So we're coming through the spring market and heading towards summer. And, it, you know, statistically, we see inventory highest in the summer. And uh, we usually see a slowdown in activity in the summer. The old seasonal pattern is one where everyone goes on vacation in the summer. Mm-hmm. Inventory plateaus at its highest level of the year. And we don't see a ton of sales. It creeps up and then into a busier fall market. And we've talked on this podcast before about how throughout COVID, there's been sort of the seasonality has been thrown out the window. Sales have stayed elevated. Inventory right. has stayed constrained. And we haven't seen those usual sort of busy spring and fall, slow summer and winter. So... As we look ahead, I wonder how much of a sort of a slowdown that comes in the summer is back to the usual seasonality as, you know, 2022, people can travel again. They can travel Mm -hmm. domestically, internationally. People can get back on planes with a little more comfort level. There's a lot of people out there who have that household savings who maybe want to go get back out again. So we'll see if that is uh, do the case of the old seasonality coming back into play or whether our market kind of slows down as people just back out to sort of reliving their lives again. So yeah, I think, I think those are very valid insights. Um, I mean, the reality is with things changing so much as they have been, and as we expect them to continue to, um, it is hard to predict with certainty what the market will look like one, three, six months down yeah, the road. Totally. Um, but, you know, six months down the road, we encourage you to read the next Rainy Landscape. Our fall <laughs> edition will be out and we'll take stock of where we're at. You know, and a lot may have changed at that time, right? It's a, it's a very, very interesting time to, um, to um, be thinking about real estate. Exactly. So let's wrap up our landscape with our three key insights that we talked about today. We are nearing the end of a housing market super cycle. Our market is supported by strong fundamentals and headwinds are blowing into our market. So it sounds like we're potentially in for some turbulence in the short term that could affect our economy and housing market. But longer term, the fundamentals underpinning our region are sound. This wraps up this episode of the Rennie podcast. To dig deeper into the data, be sure to check out the Rennie landscape on rennie.com intelligence. Be the first to receive this information straight to your inbox and register for intelligence updates. Thank you, Ryan Berlin and Ryan Wise, for your time today. Thanks, Justine. Yeah, thanks. There'll be lots more to talk about in the fall. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. The Rennie Podcast is a Rennie production and is recorded on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to learn more, 
All resources mentioned in the episode can be found on Rennie.com.